welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Sam Cedar Show, The Young Turks, In These Times, and Ring of Fire. reports a stark assessment of terrorism trends by American intelligence agency has found that the American invasion and occupation of Iraq has actually helped spawn a new generation of Islamic radicalism and that the overall terrorist threat has grown since the September 11th attacks. The classified national intelligence estimate attributes a more direct role to the Iraq war in fueling radicalism than presented either in recent White House documents, or in a report released Wednesday by the House Intelligence Committee. The intelligence estimate completed in April. Now, why hasn't the Bush administration presented the foremost, most comprehensive study of the implications of our occupation of Iraq to the American people? I wonder why. It's the first formal appraisal of global terrorism by the United States Intelligence Agency since the Iraq War began and represents a consensus view of 16 disparate spy services inside government. Titled Trends in Global Terrorism, Implications for the United States, it asserts that Islamic radicalism, rather than being in retreat, has metastasized and spread across the globe. The report says that the Iraq war has made the overall terrorism problem worse, said one American intelligence official. More than a dozen United States government officials and outside experts were interviewed for this article. The officials include employees of several government agencies and both supporters and critics of the Bush administration. Analysts began working on the estimate in 2004, but it was not finalized until this year. Well, apparently it would have been a problem if it came out before the election of George Bush. The estimate's judgments confirm some predictions of a National Intelligence Council report completed in January 2003, two months before the Iraq invasion. That report stated that the approaching war had the potential to increase support for political Islam worldwide and could increase support for some terrorist objectives. Documents released by the White House, timed to coincide with the fifth anniversary of the September 11th attacks, emphasized the successes that the United States had made in dismantling the top tier of al-Qaeda. Surprise, surprise! The report, titled 9-11 Five Years Later, said, we have done much to degrade al-Qaeda and its affiliates and to undercut the perceived legitimacy of terrorism. Well, I guess... That's not true. One has to wonder how this uh, new uh, torture statute that uh, Senator John McCabe is now promoting uh, will go towards uh, stemming the tide of, uh, uh, or fueling the legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy of terrorism. The estimate concludes that the radical Islamic movement has expanded from a core of al-Qaeda operatives and affiliated groups to include a new class of self-generating cells. Inspired by al-Qaeda's leadership, but without any direct connection to Osama bin Laden or his top lieutenants. 
For more than two years, there has been tension between the Bush administration and American spy agencies over the violence in Iraq and the prospects for a stable democracy in the country. Some intelligence officials have said that the White House has consistently presented a more optimistic picture of the situation in Iraq than justified by intelligence reports from the field. The broad judgments of the new intelligence estimate are consistent with assessments of global terrorist threats by American allies and independent terrorism experts. More recently, the Council on Global Terrorism, an independent research group of respected terrorism experts, assigned a grade of D-plus to United States efforts over the past five years to combat Islamic extremism. The Council concluded that there is every sign that radicalization in the Muslim world is spreading rather than shrinking. Well, uh, congratulations, ladies and gentlemen. We now have definitive proof that uh, the Bush administration policy is an abject failure. So let's get to Bush's fun quotes here. First, he's talking about uh, how the Middle East was already uh, destabilized before we came and totally screwed it up. Here's President Bush at the United Nations. Some have argued that the democratic changes we're seeing in the Middle East are destabilizing the region. This argument rests on a false assumption that the Middle East was stable to begin with. The reality is that the stability we thought we saw in the Middle East was a mirage. For decades, millions of men and women in the region have been trapped in oppression and hopelessness. And these conditions left a generation disillusioned and made this region a breeding ground for extremism. So we made it better by invading Iraq and wildly destabilizing the region even further. Where's the rationale here? Where, what's, what's the logic here? Uh, no, 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 don't worry about it. The Middle East was already screwed up, so we decided to make it worse. Uh, where is the part of the argument where you say, no, us invading Iraq took that region that was destabilized and made it more stable see but that part of the argument doesn't exist because it can't possibly be made even by president bush uh but now we go on to something even better imagine being young in the middle east he says <laughs> get a yeah, load of yeah, this yeah yes this is fun imagine what it's like to be a young person living in a country that is not moving toward reform you're 21 years old and while your peers in other parts of the world are casting their ballots for the first time you were powerless to change the course of your government. While your peers in other parts of the world have received educations that prepare them for the opportunities of a global economy, you have been fed propaganda and conspiracy theories that blame others for your country's shortcomings. Hmm. And everywhere you turn, you hear extremists who tell you that you can escape your misery and regain your dignity through violence and terror and martyrdom. For many across the broader Middle East, this is the dismal choice pre presented every day. Every civilized nation, including those in the Muslim world, must support those in the region who are offering a more hopeful alternative. 
We know that when people have a voice in their future, they are less likely to blow themselves up in suicide attacks. <laughs> I, just, uh, I mean, come on, get a load of the guy. I mean, he says this in front of other world leaders. Yeah. When people are more hopeful, they are less likely to blow themselves up in suicide attacks. Uh, there's a lot I like there. I love the, 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 the they've used propaganda to blame others for, for your their own country's shortcomings. Yeah, God forbid that the world leaders would, would use propaganda against their own people to blame others for your own shortcomings. That would never happen here. Yeah, gee, I, I wonder where I might have seen that before. Yeah, and then I, you're, imagine you're a 21-year-old living in the Middle East. And your daddy can't get you job after job following failure after failure. Can't get you into Harvard and then Yale and then out of Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Man, that would suck. That would be horrible. <laughs> right. Imagine you can't be a cheerleader and in Andover. That's right. He was a cheerleader. <laughs> Imagine you can't become a drunk fool and run a couple of businesses into the ground and have the Bin Ladens bail you out <laughs> at Harkin Energy. We have uh, many more uh, quotes from uh, the president, and we also want to hear what you have to say about this and, uh, and Akhmedinejad, Akhmedinejad. Can I just say, I also love uh, his use of the uh, S at the end of things. Oh, yeah. We, you know, a long time ago, we, he, taught, he said internets, yeah. and we have that on here, and we play that every once in a while. Uh, here, he said, you can't get an educations. Yeah. Okay. No, you just get an education. I, apparently, you didn't get one, so you don't know. But, and then, second of all, the extremists. Extremists. Yeah. Extremists. <laughs> one more time, Jay. One more time. Extremists. But what? What is that? Nobody. What? No. Nobody talking about the apostrophe after the S. It's not an S apostrophe S. My dad. Very confusing. My dad used to add S's to many ball players' names Uh-oh. who seemed like they should, like George Hendrick. Mm-hmm. George Hendricks. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of people do that, but extremists just... No extremists. Well, you might think it's an extremist if you didn't get an education. (laughs) All right, we're going to come right back. Your your calls when we come back. On the Young Turks on Air America Radio. Arnove is author of the recently published book, The Logic of Withdrawal. The following discussion was part of an event hosted by In These Times in Chicago. Chicago Sun-Times columnist and In These Times senior editor Laura Washington interviewed Arnove after a brief talk by historian Studs Terkel. The title of this book has an interesting origin. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, like uh, Studs, I like to plagiarize. I plagiarize this title. From Howard Zinn, who's probably my favorite plagiary. In 1967, Howard Zinn wrote a book called Vietnam, The Logic of Withdrawal. And that book argued that the only sensible course uh, that the United States could take was immediate, unconditional withdrawal. And that was in 1967. And then you think how many more years that war went on and how many more people died. And to this day, 
people in this country, people in Vietnam, still suffering the consequences of that, of the c continuation of that war. And it wasn't just that it continued, but it was expanded. Even after, you know, Howard laid out this powerful case, even after the Tet Offensive in 1968, even after it was clear that the United States was, was losing in Vietnam, that the Vietnam, the people of Vietnam did not want the United States there, they expanded the war into Laos, into Cambodia. Millions of people died. And in 2002, I was fortunate enough to, at South End Press, republish a lot of books by Howard that had gone out of print, and that was one of them. And I reread the book, and then when this most recent phase of the U.S. war on Iraq, which has gone through many phases, but this most recent phase, when the invasion took place in 2003, I, I went back and looked at it again, and I was struck by how many of the arguments Howard was making were the same arguments we were having to make again today in regard to Iraq. Uh, and like Stud said, there's, there's a history that's been forgotten and that we need to bring back to people, a history of what the U.S. has done in the world and also a history of how people have resisted it. You bring up history, and, and, and of course, you are a student of history, and Studs is definitely the ultimate <laughs> student of history. And one of the things he said to me when I interviewed him a few weeks ago for In These Times was we talked about the war, and he said part of the problem is that we forget our, our history. The way you put it is we're suffering from a, a national Alzheimer's disease when it comes yeah. to our history. Talk a little bit about sure. um, what, what are the things we're forgetting that would be uh, sure. applicable and instrumental as we discuss this war. Well, first of all, I think we have to start with where the amnesia comes from, that it's systematically encouraged, <laughs> that, you know, our school textbooks, our national establishment media, the corporate uh, media outlets deny that history, don't tell that history, or they tell a completely false version of our history. And so when George Bush says we're bringing democracy to Iraq or we're bringing civilization to, to, to Iraq or we're stopping civil war from breaking out there, People don't necessarily know the whole history of when the United States has claimed to be bringing democracy to other people or claimed to be preventing civil war in other countries. But if you knew a little bit about that history, for example, go back to the Philippines. George Bush actually in 2003 cited the occupation of the Philippines as a model for the occupation of Iraq. But go back and look at the occupation of the Philippines and in the name of democracy what the United States did to the Philippines people. The torture, the massacres, the denial of democracy to those people who remained under occupation for decades and then had a dictatorship supported by the United States that cruelly treated the population. If you know some of that history, if you've read Studs, if you've read Howard Zinn, if you've read the genuine history of this country, then you have a lot more skepticism when politicians stand before you and say, we're bringing democracy to Iraq. That's why, that's why we're there. You talk, interestingly enough, about terminology uh, mm. in the book and phrases and terms that are used not only in this war but have been used in history to mm -hmm. spin, so, so yeah. to speak, American imperialism and American empire building. Three that just that, that I made notes of was the concept of foreign fighters and coming mm -hmm. into Iraq. Terrorism and who, the, who are the terrorists? Yep. The Arab mind, that was one that seemed especially insidious to me. Can you talk about those sure. specific phrases and, and what impact they have and how they're being used? Foreign fighters, I mean, yeah, this really Orwell would have, could say a lot about. But the idea that the United States sends 140,000 soldiers into a country, knowing, none of them knowing Arabic, you know, a handful, knowing nothing about Arab culture. I was speaking on a panel with a vet earlier this, this week, and he said we had 30 minutes of sensitivity training 
before we went into Iraq. 30 minutes. And then you say, but the problem is that we're being resisted by foreign fighters. And we have to make sure that there's no foreign meddling in Iraq in reference to Iran, which is Iraq's neighbor. Uh, that's foreign meddling. But 140,000 troops, plus all the other international troops that have been brought in, they're not foreign fighters. And of course, this idea of foreign fighters, I mean, is absurd at another level, which is that they want to make it seem as if anyone who's resisting the occupation is somehow was sent into the country from outside to fight. But even their own studies now show the overwhelming majority of people are Iraqis who are spontaneously resisting and resent the occupation. Now you had a great stat in there about the, the number of people who, who actually had foreign passport. They rounded up over a period of time, yeah. and it was some minuscule percentage. Four yeah. percent. And, and for an Iraqi to have a foreign passport is not that hard to do, because a lot of Iraqis were working in other countries as exiles and under the dictatorship, and so may have come back but had different paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the reporting of the U.S. military itself. So they have every interest in exaggerating the number of people they've rounded up, and they only really came up with 4%. And then you come to terrorists. The whole war in Iraq is being sold as a war on terrorism. Well, first of all, Iraq was not in any way a threat to the United States, was not sponsoring terrorism, was not connected to 9-11. But secondly, the bigger issue is that the United States is using state terrorism against the people of Iraq. And the the largest terrorists in Iraq today are the people who are using the force of an occupying army to suppress the people who don't want them there. And so it seems to it's, you know it seems to me we have to be you know redefine that term and not fall into the trap of saying that there's somehow an otherwise legitimate war on terrorism. It's just that Iraq is a distraction from it. Iraq is a central part of a whole ideological assault, partly an assault on Islam, partly an assault on on Muslims uh, in this country, uh, immigrants um, as well, uh, an attack on civil liberties, but it's a whole framework of trying to sell endless war. Mm -hmm. You know, Rumsfeld talks about there might be 50 or 60 countries that we're targeting. George Bush saying, this occupation of Iraq, it's not up for me to say when it will end, it'll be the next administration. So they're trying to sell a series of interventions through this, mm-hmm. through this framework. And then another component of that, and a very racist component, is this idea that uh, the Arab mind, uh, as it's termed in ac- so-called academic scholarly literature, but in literature that's being read by the military and internally distributed to soldiers in some cases, the Arab mind only understands violence. The Arab mind only understands force and selling a whole set of racist ideas about the people who you are occupying and what you have to do in order to to subjugate them. You made a connection to this concept of the Arab mind in terms of what was happening at Abu Ghraib and Mm -hmm. in terms of torture. Talk about that. So there was a rationale that actually is being inculcated into the training of soldiers about violence and relating that to... Absolutely. There was a conscious attempt to to use an idea of how you sexually humiliate Arab men in order to control and dominate them. And so when they say, oh, Abu Ghraib, we were shocked. When they say it was just a couple of bad apples, when they say we had no idea this was happening, this had nothing to do with their training, with what they were authorized to do, it's completely untrue. This is a logical outcome of a whole 
series of directives that have been given to soldiers about how to treat prisoners, how to treat uh, Iraqis, and it flows from the logic of occupation, which does rely on that dehumanization of the quote-unquote enemy. So I think Abu Ghraib, and it's not just Abu Ghraib, we have to remember, it's other torture facilities in Iraq, it's other detention centers in Iraq, it's just you know part of a much bigger picture. And today, in Iraq, there are still 14,000 Iraqis in detention. 50 to 60,000 have gone through the detention facilities. And many of the people who are being detained have been held more than two years, never having any trial, any due process, any evidence presented against them, any way of contesting their claims. In many cases, their families don't even know where they are. You have families going around from detention center to detention center trying to find their loved ones. Some of those people that were out demonstrating and some of those people who weren't sure where they stood um, yeah. are now saying, you know, look, I, was, I had my doubts. I, was, I thought this was the wrong move, but we're here now. We're invested. We have to see this through. It's not just the Bush yeah. administration saying it. Sure. It's, it's well-meaning people who are very much uh, about peace. Yeah. What's your response to that argument? Look, I mean, that's why I wrote this book, because, you know, the, the logic of withdrawal is not that the Bush administration is going to read this book and feel, you know, oh, okay, now, you know, <laughs> we, see, we see the logic in, with the error in our ways. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that, would, that, that would mean <laughs> that Bush would have to read eight right, exactly. to get to right. this book. Yeah. So it's not about that. Uh, the, the logic is that I hope that a lot of those people who do have, who did oppose the war when it first began, but now have been persuaded by various arguments about there might be civil war if we leave, the consequences might be worse if we leave, don't we have an obligation to the Iraqi people, really well-meaning people. That's, those are the people who I think can hear the logic of the argument I'm making. And so I think we have to be very patient with those people and, and go through their questions and their concerns. And the basic case I'm making is that the longer the United States stays in Iraq, the worse it will get. The longer the United States stays in Iraq, the greater the chance of civil war. The longer the United States stays in Iraq, the more destabilizing it is globally in terms of increasing the chance of nuclear conflict and war with the kinds of consequences that, that Studs was talking about earlier. So then, you know, we can get into the specifics of those arguments, but I think we've, we can also just look back at the last three years of occupation. They keep saying it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get, you know, they've had a whole series of markers. Once we capture Saddam Hussein, okay, no, that didn't work. Uh, once we have, okay, we don't want to have elections, but once we have elections. And then, okay, well, once we have a constitution. And then once we have a stable political, you know, once we train the, all these benchmarks, but it, every, if you just like block it off in six-month markers, each six months, it's worse. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of evidence of, of how things are getting worse as a result of the occupation. And I think that we can predict with a high degree of certainty that it'll only continue to get worse unless we can compel the United States to withdraw. You just heard an interview by journalist Laura Washington with writer Anthony Arnov. Arnov's new book is The Logic of Withdrawal. This is how it works. screaming crowd while laughing up a storm until we were just bound until it got so warm that none of us could sleep and all
Right now, we're back with Tim Dickinson to talk about his article in the current issue of Mother Jones magazine, which he co-wrote with Jonathan Stein, and it's called Chronicles of a War Foretold. Truth was a casualty long before we invaded Iraq. One of the things that you do, you talk about just the sheer determination between all of these neocons, Rumsfeld, Cheney, and the president, to go after Iraq no matter what the evidence foretold. Immediately after the attack of September 11th, Rumsfeld has a meeting. One of his aides takes notes on the meeting, and what he says is, get the best info fast, judge whether it's good enough to hit Saddam Hussein at the same time and not just Osama bin Laden. And the first thought that came to his mind when those World Trade Center towers fell was, no matter what the evidence shows, we're going to use this to go after Saddam Hussein. But 9-11 clearly created an opening for them to implement a, a policy that was topped on their agenda from the beginning. And I think, I think one of the most troubling things as I look through this timeline is that you see that although the war didn't start until March of 2003, the decision to go to war was made a full year earlier in March of 2002. And there's a, an incident where, where George Bush peeks his head into a meeting with Condi Rice and a couple of senators and says, you know, F Saddam, we're taking him out. And this is about the same time that the Downing Street memos start to pop up. And so you have this sort of puzzled reaction by the British to the incredible push and drive by the Bush administration to make, make Saddam target number one and to shift the focus from al-Qaeda to Iraq. And looking back at it, it's clear that, that the decision to go to war was made in March of 2002, and that by June of 2002, we were actually beginning the air war. But the, the air war with something like 20,000 missions bombing 400 targets started in June of 2002, before the Congress had ever voted to go to war, before a national intelligence estimate on Iraq's weapons capability had been drawn up. We're in there under, under the auspices of the UN no-fly rule, but we're bombing targets that are outside of the no-fly area. And this timeline in the magazine goes up to where the war begins, but it's clear that the war truly begins at least six, nine months beforehand. And then President Bush tells Saudi Prime Ambassador Prince Bandar that we're going to go to war in Iraq two days before he tells Colin Powell. The details just keep popping up. There's a new book out by David Korn, and um, I think Helen Thomas had said something smart at a, a press conference, and, and Bush reacts angrily and says, well, did you tell her that I intend to kick uh, his Saddam's uh, MFing rear end all over the Mideast? You know, and this is in, in May of 2002. And then he'll go on uh, sort of on a monthly basis to say, I haven't made any decisions. We're not going to go attack Iraq. Uh, you know, this war is going to be my last choice, not my first choice. But the, the fact that the decision to go to war was made before a national intelligence estimate uh, assessing the threat of Saddam's nuclear weapons had ever been drawn up, that's all you need to know in terms about what was this evidence, was the intelligence fixed around the policy? Well, yes, it was. Middle, middle of that year when, when Dick Cheney and Scooter Libby started making trips to the CIA and putting pressure on analysts to, to confirm intelligence that had been stovepiped in the, uh, in the parlance of Seymour Hersh to their their office. It should make any American blood boil, I think. You know, one of the scariest things about looking at this, what I'd call a crime line, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is what happened to the American press? What happened to the Washington Post? What happened to the New York Times? Uh, you know, this stuff was all out there. This isn't original research by you. This is stuff that, you know, was in the papers little by little, but nobody was giving it the attention that it clearly merited. What happened to the American press? I, I'm not able to comfortably answer that question. I, I think as a member of the American press, I, I remember sitting and watching Bush's State of the Union address 
and I had heard enough about the aluminum tubes that he cited sort of sit there. This was when he's talking about the uranium from Africa and the rest of it, but he also talked about these aluminum tubes that could only be used for nuclear centrifuges, and I sort of sat there thinking, well, that's BS, but I, you know, um, the first thing I wrote about that was probably, uh, you know, a couple months after the war began, when the, when the, uh, when, when the, the questions about the uranium from Africa line really started to bubble up. And I, I really think that there was a, the, the tragedy of 9-11 had so deformed people's sense of, of reality and of, and of, you know, there's such fear and such anger and such raw emotions and potent emotions that really sort of over, overrode rational thought that the Bush administration was able to, to harness that and, 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 uh, Exercise, you know, just pull off this incredible bait and switch. But it's it's really heartbreaking when you go back to, you know, October of 2002 and you see this Knight Ritter story that talks about senior administration officials and intelligence officers, all of whom spoke only on the condition of anonymity, charged that the decision to publicize one analysis of the aluminum tubes and ignore contrary one is typical of the way the administration has been handling intelligence about Iraq. And then, uh, you know, there's a story on page right before the start of the war. It's, uh, in fact, two days before the war begins in the Washington Post that is, you know, tragically buried on page 813 that says, as the Bush administration prepares to attack Iraq this week, it is doing so on the basis of a number of allegations against Iraqi President Saddam Hussein that have been challenged and in some cases disproved by the United Nations, European governments, and even U.S. intelligence reports. And somehow that, that wasn't front page news and I you know it I, there was there was a momentum that this thing had and I you know that that it was clear that this was happening it was just clear that this was going to happen regardless of what the weapons inspectors found um, and regardless of what dissenting information was out there and and we even signed at one point Condoleezza Rice telling a uh, subordinate who had raised questions about the case for war well you know save your breath the decision's already been made this isn't this isn't up for debate anymore this is this is going forward you know, and, and we just got railroaded as a nation into uh, this tragic, tragic war of choice that's draining our blood and draining our treasure. And meanwhile, you know, Afghanistan has, has devolved back into Taliban rule, and 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 uh, the Pakistanis have ceded control of the the cradle of terrorism to these people. And and Osama bin Laden is suspected to be there, but his trail has been cold for two years. And so, you know, this is five years after 9/11. We're on the verge of losing two wars, really, and it's just—it's just a tragedy. And I, you know, I, I don't—I don't. Press has some blame, but I think the American people have some some blame too, in terms of just, you know, in as much as there were those war protests, in as much as there were people shouting that, you know, this is this is a wrong war. It it, it didn't it didn't move enough people to make to make this stop. And I, I it's just heartbreaking, really. The, the, the point is still the same. Uh, this is a yeah. massive fe- failure by our media 
to have drummed that tiny little paragraph that they mentioned now in hindsight four years later into our minds at that point. Now, now, yeah. where does this leave? You got Joe Lieberman. He is going to come out with some speech today on Iraq that he was talking about on Friday. I mean, where does it leave guys like him and, and, and just about every Republican running for reelection out there who've been saying we have to fight this war? We have to fight him over there as opposed to, uh, you know, I guess in England or, or wherever they are. Uh, where does it leave these people? I mean, what, what's left? Well, dude, you're making a big mistake. And I know you have to make that mistake because it's your job. You're on the radio. You have to take this stuff seriously. But you're pretending that the substance matters. The substance doesn't matter. These guys are on one side. The people who oppose the war are on the other side. That's all that matters. No matter what the scenario is, they're going to fit it into their argument that they were right, that we're safer, that this was the right thing to do. And if you don't agree with that, then, you know, you don't, you don't love your country. It'll be a little more, bit more complicated for them to do it, but this isn't going to change anyone's mind. You think this is the level of evidence they needed? You know, you think at this, at this, at this, this is going to be their tipping point? You think that, you know, the trillion dollars that we've lost, the fact that nobody can walk safely in Iraq, that the whole, you know, that the whole world hates us, that every single member of the coalition practically is pulling out, you think that, that, you know, had an effect? No, you, you have Bill Crystal on today on your show. When he comes on later on, I'm sure he'd be happy to do that. You think he's going to say, oh, yeah, now I see I was mistaken all this time. Right. But, you know, Man, I'll no tell you what, you are cantankerous in the morning. Am I? Well, no, I mean, I, you know what? It's just I've had my coffee and I'm, I'm at full strength. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, well, so, so what? So, I mean, uh, let's not. I mean, well, I mean, you, you paint a fairly bleak picture here. What? What? Well, I mean, what's what, Look, Bush has said he's not leaving Iraq, period, period. No matter what happens, we're staying there. That's the position of the head of the Republican Party and the conservative movement in this country. Anyone who wants to be president has to support that position. And anyone who wants that person to be president has to support that position. That means nothing is going to change. Now, so do you think this will have no impact on uh, on the fall elections? Do you think, I mean, is there any way for the American people? Well, I think it'll be just like last time. It'll be a one-day story. It'll go away. You think Fox is going to focus on this? Right. Today? You think, you think Scarborough is going to focus on this? Scarborough might. No. I suppose he might. But it's not, I, when I say focus, I mean focus. I mean, it's very fascinating because I know you wrote a piece uh, on the uh, propaganda offenses that, uh, offensive that took place on 9-11. This is where Bush was going on saying, you know, uh, it's 9-11. We have to remember that uh, people uh, attacked us. Uh, in fact, l let's listen to this. This is number six. This is Bush's argument. And, uh, I mean, it's fairly easy to shoot down, but uh, let me th throw you a softball. Here's his number six. Some have also argued that extremism has been strengthened by the actions of our coalition in Iraq. Claiming that our presence in that country has somehow caused or triggered the rage of radicals. I would remind them that we were not in Iraq on September the 11th, 2001. And Al Qaeda attacked us anyway. The hatred of the radicals existed before Iraq was an issue. And it will exist after Iraq is no longer an excuse. I mean, this is a fascinating he's now basically saying that the enemy is are not individuals. They're not organizations. They're not terrorist uh, groups. The enemy is hatred. Hatred existed before 9-11 and uh, it existed before uh, Iraq. And so we haven't actually uh, generated 
hatred because it existed prior to these times. You know what I wonder? I wonder, can I really live in a country that stupid that a president of the United States could make that argument? I mean, is, or is America really that stupid? That, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I may have stepped in dog duty on September 11th, too, and that was before we invaded Iraq. You know, does the idea that we were attacked by one group of people and we're being attacked by a second group of people that had nothing to do with that first group of people and that those two attacks are unrelated, is that really too difficult a concept for people to handle? It really, it really, Bush is clearly being dishonest. Bush is a liar, and but it's such a it's such a stupid lie. It's such a pathetic lie that the fact that it can be taken seriously in our culture is just makes me feel really hopeless. Well, uh, <laughs> I wish we had somewhere to go that was a little more hopeful than this. I mean, it really is fascinating uh, that that's the the rhetoric there. And you know what what is shocking is that we don't have anybody in the media who are not playing that clip over and over again and then simply reading the first paragraph of these stories about the NIE. I mean, that's what we're going to hear over and over again. They attacked us before uh, we were in Iraq, so why, you know, those they, those they are dead. Those 19 people are dead. What we have uh, obviously well, created... those 19 people are dead. It's that those people who planned that attack are having a party in a cave in Pakistan, and we let them go because we decided we would go attack these people who had nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I'm i at a loss. I mean, it really is. I mean, you run into a brick wall when you start to use rationality and uh, you call for some level of responsibility and intelligence from our media and our, at this point, our administration. Go to Mitch McConnell. He's on Face the Nation. He's a Republican senator from uh, Kentucky. Exactly. He, he, this is one of the guys that in the past that I would have had respect for. I think, you know, we talked to Sidney Blumenthal about this topic earlier, that he would have had respect for a senior member of the Republican Party. Uh, he didn't say Mitch McConnell specifically. Who, he no. would have Because I, he's not somebody... But anyway, go ahead. He's, he's, not, he's not one of those people, the Pete Domenici types, uh, that I would have put into those senior Dick Luger types. He's, mm-hmm. he's always been a hack partisan to a degree as well. Right. Uh, but he... All, even the hack partisans back in the day, I would have thought, okay, they disagree, they fight in a way that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're not outside the bounds of what we do in this country. And, and they're part of a healthy debate no matter how much you disagree with them. Uh, I think that they have now stepped outside of those bounds, and McConnell on Face the Nation was a perfect example of this. Here he is talking about... Uh, the Democrats and how they would like to surrender and, to the terrorists. And keep in mind, before we play it, Jared, just keep in mind that this is the season of 
uh, trying to scare America for mm-hmm. Republicans. This is when they're going to take that campaign tactic, tactic, try and scare Americans into voting for Republicans by saying the things that you're going to hear the senator, the good senator from Kentucky say. How many right think, now. times do you think that terror alert's going to go up between now oh, and November? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So here you're he right, is. Jill. That's true. Here he is with Bob Schieffer. No, it's with Russ Mitchell. Oh, I'm sorry, Russ yeah. Mitchell. Well, I think it is important to remind the American people that if, that, if the Dean Democrats were in charge, Saddam would still be in power, uh, murdering his own people like he used to. It would be more difficult uh, to engage in terrorist uh, surveillance. And the prisoners down at Guantanamo uh, would be treated better than American soldiers uh, in the court system. Uh, this election, Russ, is going to be a choice, uh, not a referendum. And people need to remember what Democrats do when they're in the majority. You just saw the rather angry face of uh, Howard Dean. That's what they do when they're in charge. Uh, they'll wave the white flag in the war on terror. And, you know, General Abizade had it right, Russ, if I could just uh, elaborate one more moment. Sure. Gen- General Abizade had it correct. Uh, if we uh, cut and run in Iraq, uh, they'll follow us here. And we need to remind the American people that the terrorists were at war with us before 9-11. They attacked the World Trade Center. They blew up our embassies in in East Africa. They knocked a big hole out of the USS uh, coal. It's only been since we went to war with them after 9-11 that we haven't been attacked here at home. Well, my favorite uh, parts of that were the the good old standards. Uh, He's playing the oldies. Wave the white flag of surrender to the terrorists. Yeah, it's true. I actually saw Harry the other day. He was... Just throwing that white flag around. Please, please, Al-Qaeda, come get us. You know who's actually surrendering to the terrorists? Mitch McConnell. Because he's willing to surrender the United States Constitution and let them win. And say, you know, you were right. Uh, Our freedom didn't work. Our liberties didn't work. You win. We'll be more like you. We'll take away the rights of our uh, citizens to try to fight you in a way that is, by the way, completely ineffective. You know, it's funny, though. He brings up something that a lot of conservatives do when we get into these conversations, you know, over the dinner table or wherever you're at. And it's we haven't been attacked since 9-11. You know, there's things that happened, you know, before we've taken this And I've confessed to saying that I would do that, too if it were reversed. I'd right, be saying this that. extreme yeah. stance on terror. I mean, it's how do you counter that? How do you counter, well, you know what, our embassies haven't been hit. The World Trade Center is gone, but it well, hasn't been th- hit again. You know, I mean, there's certain things that haven't happened that were happening before. All right, there's a n- Maybe number Maybe he did really bring the fight over there. Uh, that's a, that's the gut. That's don't get me started. All right, the bring the fight over there is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. And he, McConnell says they'll follow us over here. Really, they're going to go to Kentucky. Well, that's yeah. That's the, the, that's Shiites, the scary. The Shiites were fighting in southern Iraq. Yeah. Uh, that have nothing to do with Al Qaeda. In fact, that our mortal enemies of Al Qaeda would follow us to Kentucky. What the hell are you talking about, you retard? Yeah, Mitch McConnell doesn't know a goddamn thing about terrorism, who we're fighting, or anything along those lines. So I don't want to get into that. Now there is a legitimate. Point point to be made that we have not been attacked since in the last five years. We talked about it on the show before. you got to give credit where credit is due. I think some credit has to be given. Obviously, we've done some things right not to get attacked. I'm not here to do a partisan show and, okay, everything Bush does is wrong. I think his immigration plan is fair. If he did more things right, I'd love to give him credit for things that are right. Unfortunately, there have been things that have been dramatically wrong. And them pounding their chest saying there's been only one Pearl Harbor on our watch is not something that you should brag a lot about. Right. And you know, it's maybe also you should brag a little about it that we've been only devastatingly attacked on your watch just once. There's also the question of long-term security as well. You know, and which, second of all, they're not, you know, you can question their priorities on whether they're doing homeland security or they're doing, you know, or they're fighting a needless war and wasting our time in Iraq. But here's the main thing you should tell those people, Jill, and it's a very good question. 
you talk about protecting us. How about catching the guy that killed 3,000 American civilians? The biggest killer of Americans in history. And you haven't even caught that guy. You haven't caught Osama bin Laden. You haven't caught Swahiri. And you want to come talk to me? Brag? You want to brag about what happened after 9-11? You catch Osama bin Laden, and you could begin to have that conversation. Until then, I got a message for you. Shut up. I don't want to talk about 9-11 or Osama bin Laden. One word with you until you catch Osama bin Laden. Otherwise, you're an utter failure. Thanks for listening, everybody. So the uh, results are in. Survey says that the listeners of the best of the left are pro-pedophilia. Um, the emails were coming in, and uh, and even... Um, you know, even people with a, a little bit of uh, tangential uh, personal uh, relation to uh, to the topic uh, said, "No, no, freedom of speech rules, and um, and those uh, child rapists need to be able to uh, go talk about it." So there we go. Uh, you know, be uh, be proud or ashamed of that as you see fit and continue to respond if you if you like if you disagree or uh, or what have you thanks for all of the speedy replies to uh, yesterday's podcast uh, that was brought about by my uh, intense frustration with uh, with the misinterpretation of, of Bush's quote I was I was and am and continue to be ridiculously incensed about this. And, I mean, it's it's probably not reasonable and it's definitely out of whack, but I can't. I'm very frustrated, so I had to get that out. It wasn't a normal show, obviously, but, uh, I, you know, I had to get my message out one way or another. So that was what I uh, decided to do. Uh, the responses were essentially positive in uh, in reference to the actual content, but um, I feel like it's time again to uh, to remind you. I'm, I'll just have to do this every 50 shows or so that I was aware before any of you that I'm not a good public speaker slash radio host at all. Why do you think I chose to do the type of format of show that I do? The way the show originated was, I thought to myself, I like podcasts, I should do a podcast, I don't have any talent, so, oh, I can steal other people's talent. Perfect. Now, you know, going along, I, I've got things to say, so I've got to say them, but believe me, you ask the question, Hey, Jay, what's the worst part of your show? Me. That's how quick I answer. I know it. So, anyways, any uh, any responses uh, talking about uh, what a terrible radio voice I have or, um, or how much you don't like when I do a show that uh, is, is just me talking? I mean, that's, that's why God put... Uh, pause buttons on iPods as far as I'm concerned so uh, you know so just every once in a while I gotta remind you guys that I, I format the show or, or I arrange the show in the format that I have for a very specific reason I don't talk until the end so that you can skip it if you want and if but there are people who don't want to skip it so 
If you don't like it, don't listen. I don't mind. I'm not offended. You can keep those comments coming at bestoftheleftpodcast.com or you can get involved in the conversations that are springing up every day at uh, botlcommunity.com. You can find one from the other, but uh, right now I've just I've got them split up because one of them is my website and one of them is a forum and they're they're not connected now, although I hope they will be one day. So uh, check all of that out and uh, I will speak to you guys soon. Have a good one, everybody. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out